Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. And I would like to read to you what you would expect to find, perhaps, on the front page of the Idaho Statesman or the National Enquirer. For those of you who work for the Idaho Statesman, the comparison means nothing. I was just talking about the uh, sort of thing that you would expect to find on the front page of almost any newspaper across the country today. Paul says, realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of what uh, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That catalog of vices takes place in what Paul calls the last days. The last days are these days. We mustn't think that the, uh, that the last days are some far-off future period, sometime just prior to the, to the coming of Christ, a time that we often refer to as the period of great tribulation. When Paul uses this term, last days, he's talking about these days, the days in which we live, the period between the first and second coming of Christ. The last days refer to what we call the inter-advent period, the time between the first advent, the first coming, and the second advent of Christ. That's very clear from the rest of Scripture. The Old Testament used this term to refer to the the messianic era, the time when Christ would come. The writer of Hebrews, whoever that is, says in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, God who spoke to the prophets in, in various ways has in these last days spoken unto us in a son. So the last days are the days in which Christ speaks. And then Peter on the day of Pentecost uh, quotes Joel 2, in which Joel points out that in the last days God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Peter identifies what happened on the day of Pentecost with what Joel predicted. He said, this is that which Joel predicted. In the last days... God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. So there's hardly any question, if we take the apostles at face value, that the last days are these days. We're living in the last days. Now, secondly, Paul says these last days are difficult days. The word that he uses is a word that means dangerous, stressful days. The uh, Greek writers use this term to refer to wild animals who are a threat to the uh, human population at that time. And uh, Matthew, in Matthew 8, uses this term to refer to the demon-possessed man from whom Jesus cast out the legion. We're told, uh, Matthew tells us, that he, he was so dangerous that no one could pass that way, that no one could go through the, through the tombs without being, being threatened by his presence there. So these days are intended and described as difficult dangerous, stressful days. These are the days we live in. Paul is not saying that these days are uniformly dangerous. He's saying that there will be intermittent periods uh, of great stress. Now, uh, these are the days we live in. The apostles and Jesus both predicted that it would be like this. We shouldn't be surprised that things are hard. 
We shouldn't be surprised that there is war, and as Jesus put it, rumors of war, cold war, earthquake, disaster of various types. We shouldn't be uh, amazed that there are new and novel forms of venereal disease that affect even the non-promiscuous uh, part of the, of the population. We, we shouldn't be surprised that there's so much brutality toward women and, and abuse of, of children, sexual and emotional abuse of, of children. This is the way Jesus and the apostles said it would be. That's the character of, of this age. These are difficult, dangerous times. Now, Paul tells us that these are hard times because of men. Men are the problem in verse 2. Men will be lovers of self. You'll notice the four that introduces this, uh, the next sentence in verse 2. Four indicates a reason. These times are hard because of the character of, of men. Men, he says, will be lovers of self. They'll center on themselves. They'll think only of themselves. They'll be selfish, self-centered people. Lovers of money. They'll be greedy and materialistic. They will evaluate life solely in terms of possessions, as Jesus uh, once put it. They will think that life consists of things, the number of things that you possess. They will be boastful, pretentious, uh, arrogant. George Wills describes our... Uh, our times is characterized by terminal uh, hubris, that is, a kind of pride that, that kills us. They'll be arrogant, boastful, disdainful, scornful. They'll scoff at things that are high and holy. Revilers, he says, disobedient to parents, in, in rebellion, uh, ungrateful without uh, any sense of gratitude or appreciation for what others do for them. Unholy, that is, without respect for things that traditionally have been held in high regard or considered, uh, considered sacred. Unloving. Interesting word. Uh, it's a, a, a word for love. It occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It's one of C.S. Lewis's four, uh, four types of love, but the one which is not uh, described in the New Testament except in its negated form. Uh, it's the word storge that that Lewis calls duck love. It's the kind of natural affection that you have for small things, for little children and for small animals, for uh, fuzzy, uh, warm, cuddly things. Uh, the, the absence of this kind of love makes us inhumane. He says people won't even have the kind of natural, normal affection that you have for very small things, which in my mind is one reason why we have murdered 19 million little children in their mother's womb. Instead of having a natural affection for the young, Paul says these last days will be characterized by, uh, by a lack of that sort of natural affection. Irreconcilable, that is, they are in revolt and they're implacable. They will not uh, listen to reason. They won't come to the, to the negotiating table to be reconciled. They are malicious gossips. They will stab you in the back. Without self-control in sexual matters, without control in alcohol, without control in their businesses, they will do anything to make money. Brutal, savage. This is why women are mistreated, brutalized, savaged by their husbands, physically abused, emotionally abused. 
haters of good, literally, as the margin puts it, they don't love good, they aren't interested in good. And you'll notice that most of these vices are simply negations of things that are good. They don't believe in much of anything uh, except the evil form of, of the good. Treacherous, it's a word that's used for Judas in the Gospels. Reckless in word and deed, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, Paul piles up a number of words to describe these times, but uh, everything centers around the idea of a misdirected love. If you'll notice, five different times or six, if you take the word unloving in verse 3, uh, this, uh, this description of, of, of mankind during these last times, uh, is, is the, the problem is described in terms of a distortion of love. They are lovers of self, lovers of money, unloving, the last, uh, the last term in verse 3, not loving good. Lovers of pleasure in verse 4 rather than lovers of God. And as C.S. Lewis has pointed out, the entire list, or pardon me, John Stott has pointed out, the entire list is bracketed by the idea that men in the last times will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Man was intended to love God first, his neighbor second, and himself last. And when we reverse that order and we love ourselves first and God last, it's always our neighbor who suffers. All antisocial behavior, all the ills and problems and stresses of this age are, are, are because we are basically self-centered people. We love ourselves rather than God. That's the problem. That's the problem with you and me. That's the problem with our community. It's the problem with, with all the people that, uh, that we're, we're next to and, and work with. We love ourselves rather than God. That's the, that's the fundamental problem. And that's what creates so much hurt and pain and stress in our world. Jesus said, because of the wickedness of many, the love of many will grow cold. And that's why our world is such a cold, desperately cold place and why there's so much hurt and, and so much pain in the world. The problem, Paul says, is man. And we just, we just have, to, we have to place the blame where it, where it ought to lie. The problem lies within us. As Pogo put it, we have met the enemy and he is us. Now, we, we would like to disclaim that responsibility. We would like to, to place it on someone else. We'd like to blame our mates. We'd like to blame our employer, our employees, or the system. Uh, Waterman and Peters in the Search for Excellence point out what they call a fundamental attribution error in the human race. And that is we tend to claim successes as our own and attribute failures to the system or to someone else. That's the problem. We always blame everybody else. But the problem is us. We are self-centered. We love ourselves rather than God. Uh, I read a humorous little poem a few weeks ago about our tendency to blame others. Uh, it goes like this. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed my cat and blacked my wifey's eyes. He laid me on a comfy couch to see what he could find, and this is what he dredged up out of my unconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy locked my dolly in the trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now from kleptomania. At three, 
I was ambivalent toward my younger brothers, and that's the reason why to date I've poisoned all my lovers. And I'm so glad since I have learned the lesson I've been taught that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. Now, unfortunately, that's, uh, that's the way we look at life. Everything is someone else's fault, and we will not accept uh, the fact that we are to blame. There is something fundamentally wrong with us. And it cannot be changed by education. It can't be changed by politicizing us. It can't be changed by socializing us. It can't be changed by putting us in a new or better environment. Somehow our heart has to be changed. I uh, uh, read this last week of uh, Robert's Rule of Pig Pedagogy. Robert's Rule of Pig Pedagogy states, Never try to teach a pig to sing. It will waste your time, and it annoys the pig. <clears throat> and, I, and I often think uh, uh, of, of that sort of thing when I think about our attempts to try to change people when basically they are unchangeable. Their, their hearts are set, and nothing that we try to do from the outside will change them. Something has to happen within. They've got to be changed within. And that's where the gospel comes in. That's why Paul says at the very outset of this book, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because that's what, that's what changes people's lives. It's coming into contact with Jesus Christ. It's been being made a new creation in Christ, as Paul puts it, that changes us. We have to be changed from the inside out. Our hearts have to be changed. Nothing else will do, you see. I mentioned several months ago, maybe a year ago, that I used to raise pigs. Uh, I raised Duroc pigs. And uh, I had a, a brief brush with immortality. Uh, one of my sows had the heaviest litter of pigs in the state of Texas. Like Harriet, this was some pig. And uh, I used to take her to, uh, to fairs around town to show her off. Uh, Duroc pigs are supposed to be a kind of a maroon color, if you've ever seen them. Uh, my pig was yellow, and uh, so I used to daub her with uh, cordovan shoe polish and uh, buff her up, and she was really a beautiful pig. And we'd take her to the fair, and she'd stand on that nice, clean straw, and uh, just extraordinarily clean pig. But the minute we'd take her home and unload her out of the pickup, you know what she'd do. She'd make a beeline for the nearest... Uh, nearest uh, mud hole, and she would just keel over on her side and roll her eyes and get this look of utter bliss on her face, and you knew that she was in hog heaven. There just was no way to get around that. But I never could fault her because she had that sort of nature, you see. Now, that's a, uh, you know, I hesitate to apply that analogy to me. Uh, nevertheless, that's what Scripture tells me. I have a nature that has to be changed. And until that nature is changed, I cannot expect to change very much. I may change a little bit, but I will not change very much. Now, uh, this is the problem, as Paul presents it. This is, this is why these last times are so brutal, so hard, so cold, so difficult. Something is wrong with men, and men need to be changed. Now, you understand when I say men, I'm using the term generically. I'm including you women also, but I, you know, I just want to make that clear. Verse 5, he goes on to say something about their religious practices. 
Because uh, evil men and women are often very religious. As a matter of fact, the two seem to go hand in hand. I think it's because we are essentially religious beings. We're incurably religious. We can't do without God, or at least we cannot do without the spiritual dimension. So very often when you find very evil people, you will find that they are very, very religious. And that's the way Paul describes them. But they only have a form of godliness. They have the outward manifestations of godliness, but they deny the power. The power of any religion is the power of the cross that puts to death the self-life. It's our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection that makes new creatures of us. That's how the heart has changed, you see. And when we deny the gospel, we deny the very power that makes religion work. So they have a form, but it has no heart, has no power, has no dynamic, because they've, they've denied it. They have a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, Paul says. Now understand, he's not saying we should avoid non-Christians, nor should we avoid sinners. Jesus was the friend of sinners. We need to befriend people that are outside of the church and outside of Christ. We need to be real friends. We need to do things with them and cultivate relationships with them and not be put off by their behavior. Paul is not talking about sinful people. He's rather talking about religious phonies. People who are evil to the core, and yet they have a facade of religion. Paul says, avoid people like that. Uh, it's uh, very much uh, the same sort of thing that he says in Romans 16, when he urges the Christians in Rome to keep, he says, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. It's that sort of people, those, that, that sort that Paul says to avoid. Because, as he says in verse 6, they are deceitful. They are tricky. They're smooth, but they will gull you. They're out to deceive you. For among them, he says in verse 6, are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see the 4 in verse 6, the, the uh, conjunction there that ties this together with verse 5. The reason Timothy is to avoid them is because of their methodology. They are not to be trusted. They are devious and deceitful. The word that Paul uses for enter in verse 6, if you have a New American Standard, uh, you can look in the side note. It says uh, to creep. That's the word. To creep. They are creeps, Paul says. Stay away from them. They don't have anything to, to do with them because they are not to be, to be trusted. They prey on weak women. Now, I, I, I hasten to say that Paul is not talking about all women. He's talking about a particular class of women. There are little women. That's the word that Paul uses. He uses the diminutive form of the noun. They're little women. Now, they're not the Louisa May Alcott type of little, little women. They are, they are little in mind. That's Paul's point. And they're little in soul. Now, there are men that are little in mind, little in soul, too. So he's not picking on women. Paul's not a, just a chauvinistic rabbi. If you know anything about Paul, you know how different he was from his culture. In that culture, women were, uh, were chattel. They were nothing except for the... Uh, the, the uh, uh, the, the moneyed uh, 
branch of, of, the Ro- of, of Roman uh, government. Those women were highly uh, revered. But normally women, and particularly in the Eastern world, women were, were chattel. They were junk. They were nothing. And Paul had a very high and holy view of, of women. So he's not putting down women here. But he is saying that there is a class of women that these people prey on. They sneak into their households when their husbands are away at work, and uh, they, they, they gull, they deceive these women. They, they teach them error, and they bring them into their, into their cult. They're described as women weighed down with sins, that is, they're guilt-ridden because they're not doing the things they ought to be doing around, around their home. They're not providing for their family, or perhaps because they don't feel loved by their husbands, they've gotten involved in affairs, and so they're, they're guilty and burdened by their, by their sin. And they're led on by various impulses. They're unstable and emotional. They, their whole life is based upon their, their emotions. They're always learning and never able to come to the, to the knowledge of, of the truth. The reason they can't come to the knowledge of the truth is that they're not willing to face it. They run from it. They live in a world of unreality. They live in a world of illusion. Paul says earlier in the, in the chapter that precedes us, this one, that some may come to repentance and acknowledge the truth. The biblical theory of knowledge is that you come to know the truth when you face the truth, when you're willing to look at it and see what it says and submit to it, and then you know it. But uh, those that do not submit to the truth always learn, but they never really come to acknowledge uh, the truth because they, they don't live in a real world. They live in a world of illusion. Their whole life is taken up in soaps and identification with the heroes and the, heroine, the heroines of, of, of soap operas. And they read romance novels, and that's their life because they're getting no romance any other place, you see. Now, now bear in mind, I'm not talking about all women, but he is talking about a particular class of women, and all of us know precisely what he's talking about. Uh, let, me, let me deviate. Uh, a little bit and just make a comment here. Some of you here may sense that you are a little woman. Perhaps it's because your your husband does not love you, he doesn't respect you, he doesn't appreciate what you do around the house, and so you've retreated into a, a world of illusion. May I tell you that you do not have to stay there. You do not have to remain a little woman. You can be what Proverbs calls a woman of strength and dignity, regardless of what your husband does. If he wants to waste his life, let him go. Don't worry about him. You become a woman of the word. Get into the scriptures. Get into a Bible study where the scriptures are taught and where you can be helped. One of the women's studies or Bible study fellowship or in a growth group or some other small group where you can be helped. To know and understand the scriptures and start growing up and submitting to the truth. You'll deal with your guilt. Your emotions will become stable. And you'll not be easily deceived and, and swept away. You can be a woman of tremendous strength and dignity. And pity the poor cultist who comes to your door. You can send them packing, you see. And uh, I, I guess I want to say that because I don't want anyone to think that that's a class that you have to belong to. No one, man or woman, should remain little in mind and little in soul. We can become giants in faith, regardless of what your mate is doing, regardless of what your environment is like, or how much of your time is taken with raising children and homemaking. You don't have to remain small in faith 
and in mind. You can grow up and become a person who has has strength and tranquility and 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 uh, and depth to his or her life. Now, uh, Paul says though that there are some who do not grow up; they remain silly women, little women, easily deceived women, and they uh, are captured by these uh, unscrupulous door-to-door religious hucksters. Paul says, even though some may be deceived, most will not. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. Uh, Janus and Jambres were the two court magicians that opposed Moses. Their names are not given to us in the book of Exodus, but uh, through tradition they've come down to us as Janus and Jambres. It's interesting that Paul compares his ministry with Moses. They opposed Moses. These other men opposed me, is what he's saying. And Moses was, of course, the arch uh, prophet of the Old Testament, the most highly regarded prophet of antiquity. And uh, Paul uh, places his teaching on the same plane. They oppose Moses. Uh, These unscrupulous men that are described in chapter 3 oppose the truth that I teach. However, he says, just as Janus and Jambres' foolishness was revealed in the end, so theirs will be. They will be revealed in the end for what they are. They're fools. And that's what happens. I, I, I can't help but think of the Bhagwan who deceived a lot of people but who today is revealed as a fool. He's just a dirty old man. And uh, his uh, fleet of Rolls Royces and his mistresses reveal him for what he is. And the only people now who are deceived by the Bhagwan are people who want to be. Now that's the point that Paul is making. Their foolishness will be exposed. They will not make further progress because people will recognize first the elect, all the elect, and then others will recognize that they are fools, just as uh, as the behavior of Janus and Jambres exposed them. In the end, they could not duplicate Moses' uh, miracles. Now, uh, it's obvious what Paul is doing. Paul is saying that things are going to go from bad to worse. He promises, uh, promises us that these are going to be hard times and that we cannot expect them to get better. As a matter of fact, in verse 13, he tells uh, Timothy and us that evil men and impostors, uh, charlatans, it's the word in Greek for, for uh, paid mourners, phonies, uh, will proceed from bad to worse. It's an odd sort of progress. That they will get worse. Uh, Ogden Nash has a little poem about progress being defined as movement toward perfection. Most of my progress, he says, has been in the other direction, and uh, we can identify with that. But uh, Paul says that the same is true of these men. They go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, they not only lie, but after a while they begin to believe their own lie. That's why it's so difficult to convert these people or convince them of their error, because they, they start out lying and after a while they deceive themselves they believe their lie they 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 tell us that they received a special revelation from god or from jesus christ himself and they know it's a lie but after a while they start believing it if you if you gave them a lie detector test they they would pass the thing they're convinced 
Because you cannot control evil. We always think that we can't. Somehow we can temporize with evil and control it, but we can't. After a while, it controls us, and that's precisely what happens to people. They start out lying to us, and after a while, they believe their, uh, their lie. They're, they're utterly convinced of, of what, they, what they say. And so things will get worse. Jesus told us that they would. Paul tells us that they will. All the apostles make that abundantly clear. The, the world is not getting better and better. It is getting worse and worse. So the question is, as, as Francis Schaeffer would put it, how then shall we live? What is the proper response to these times of, of terror, these stressful times? What should we do? Well, the verbs that follow throughout the rest of the book, which are a series of commands, carry forward the gist of Paul's argument. Now, we're not going to take time to talk about them. We'll amplify on each one in the weeks uh, to follow. But just so you get the argument, will, will you look at verse 10? Things, he says, will get worse. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, sufferings, and so forth. He reminds Timothy of, the char- of, of, of his character, of Paul's character, and contrasts it with the character of those that are described above. He talks about the life that he lived and the sufferings that he endured, and he says, Paul, uh, Timothy, keep in mind what it was like to follow me. Then in verse 14, he commands Timothy to continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. The whom is plural. He's referring to himself and to the other apostles and those that had, had so enriched uh, Timothy's life. He reminds him of the past, of his past loyalty, and encourages him to continue on. You've grasped the truth. You've absorbed it. Now live by it, he says. Live out the truth. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, or chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Uh, The word for preach here is the uh, word that refers to the heralding uh, of of a king's command. It's a verb based on the the Greek noun for a herald of the king. The Kerux was one who went from town to town and, and proclaimed the message, uh, proclaimed the news from the king. And Paul says that's what you're to do. You're to be like a Kerux. You're to proclaim the word without, without any fear, without favoritism. You're simply to proclaim it. So uh, in view of the uh, terror of these times, what should we do? Paul says two things, two things to do. Just be God's man and God's woman. Continue on in the things that you've learned. Stick to the truth. Don't budge from what you know. Don't be uh, swept away by what you're hearing around you and what other people are doing. Even though all of your friends are telling you to give up on your marriage, don't do it. Even though all your friends are, are doing cocaine, don't do it. Even though all of your business associates are fudging and cutting corners and telling lies and deceiving their their, uh, customers, don't do it. Even though everyone is sleeping around, don't do it, he says. 
Be like a rock in the middle of a stream. The whole world, he says, is going to go to hell in a handbasket, but don't you do it. Stand fast. Be different. And then proclaim the truth. Otherwise, people will just look at you and say, my, what a together person. I mean, how did he get to be so uh, poised and, and, and self-controlled in this, in this nowhere scene? You, they got to know where your power comes from. We've got to herald it like a king, as we saw last week. How we say what we say is just as important as what we say. It's got to be done with gentleness, with kindness, with compassion for people. We should never be hard and harsh and brutal and brusque with people. We ought always to be gentle, but we've got to herald it. So those are the things that we must do in, 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 the, in view of, of these last days. We must live the truth and we must proclaim it. That's what it means to be different, to live and to walk differently. I was uh, going to meet a friend for lunch last week, and I was on my way to MK, and I drove down uh, Broadway, and I uh, saw uh, a physician that I know that works at St. Luke's about 100 yards ahead of me on Broadway. He had his back to me. I couldn't see his face. He was dressed in a suit, and I hardly ever see him in a suit. But I recognized him immediately because I recognized his walk. Now, it's not that he walks in any strange sort of way. It's just that he has a distinctive gait, and he just looks different when he walks. And I spotted him because he was different. Out of a whole crowd, I spotted him. That's what Paul is saying. We are to be different. People ought to be able to look at us and say, that person is living and walking differently than the world around. And that's the only way to make a difference. We cannot be caught up in the, the thinking, the morality of, of our age. We just have to be different. We have to live differently. We have to manifest a quality of love and kindness and generosity and faithfulness to God that, that we do not see around us, and we must proclaim the truth faithfully, patiently, correctly, clearly, you see. And that's how we'll make a difference. And that's the only way to make a difference. Paul says in Ephesians 5, redeem the time because the days are evil. And as I pointed out before, we tend to, to, uh, to read that passage as though Paul is saying, redeem the time because the days are short. We don't have much time. The Lord's coming back, so let's get on with it. But that's not what Paul is saying. It's not what he's saying at all. He says, buy up the time because the days are evil. In other words, evil days are days of opportunity. So buy them up. Don't waste them. You know, people all around you are hurting. I hope you realize that. The reason God is against sin is not because he just arbitrarily decided that some things are sinful and he proscribed those things. No, no, no. It's because God knows what hurts. And people are God's product. He loves people. He doesn't want to see people hurt. But that's what's happening around us. People are hurt. They're hurt to the heart. They're cut to the quick. And we need to live before them distinctively different lives. That's what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, what do you do more than these others? It's not merely what we don't do, it's what we do. It's the quality of love and graciousness that ought to, ought to, uh, exemplify, we ought to exemplify in our lives. And then secondly, we need to make proclamation of this truth. Those two things, live it and proclaim it. That's the way to live in these times of terror. Let's let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. <clears throat>
Father, this is for us a very sobering word, but yet, but yet at the same time a very encouraging word. It's good to know that uh, you were well aware of the quality of these times, and, and you've warned us in advance that things would be difficult. We don't want to be surprised, Lord, at the fiery trial that comes to try us. We don't want to be caught off balance by things happening around us that are totally unexpected. We, we're grateful that we, that, that we know things will be hard, that these times will be harsh, that we will be hurt, and that those around us will, will suffer as well. But we're also glad that we have this simple, simple word of encouragement. We can make a difference in, in our neighborhoods, in our classrooms, in our offices, simply by walking differently and by proclaiming a different message, one that's true to the truth, one that people simply do not hear and fully understand today. Give us the courage to be what you've called us to be in these times. We want to be strengthened, as Timothy was to be strengthened, by your grace. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.